Give Me Some Credit, episode number three, Teaching Students of Poverty with Dr. Tammy Pulaski. Tammy Pulaski. Tammy is the uh, director of Francis Marion's uh, Center of Excellence uh, to prepare teachers of children of poverty. And um, it's always a, a great opportunity for me to, to learn so much when I, when I speak with her. If you have not had the opportunity and you uh, do have the opportunity to hear one of her sessions, highly recommend it. Um, all teachers really should be well-versed in the topics that she is an expert on. And so I wanted to have her on the program to, to talk about poverty and how it impacts student learning and how teachers really need to be aware of these issues because it, it, what happens, I think, and is that teachers often in unintentionally damage student learning because they are ignorant of these issues. So Welcome to the program, Dr. Pulaski, and thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to spend some time thinking about this with you. Let's, um, I always like to start off in these types of interviews, making a connection to how you got connected to the work. So going back to your, your childhood and, and then as you were thinking about the type of career that path that you wanted to, to have as, as an adult. What, what is it that you think led you to education and specifically to this uh, issue of poverty? Wow, uh, that question goes a, a long way back. As a high school senior, I had no clue what I uh, wanted to be when I grew up, and and uh, uh, an, actually a creative writing class uh, as a senior in high school took us to a variety of different settings where we were to be inspired to write. And one of those settings was a kindergarten classroom. Uh, that day, that moment, I decided that's what I wanted to, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, and so um, I had had very little formal exposure to early childhood education. I had never really done much babysitting or I just really didn't have any experience with it. But I, that one day was the was the moment that I decided this is a this is a fun way to to live my life and and um, and it was a good fit for me. My dad was a high school principal. My mom worked in schools throughout my uh, life, so I knew education fairly well as the as the child of educators. But really, had never even thought about that as a career path. Um, so, but it was a nice fit. And um, I moved through that edu my uh, pre-service training and with a focus on early childhood education and began my career there. I began my career in a high poverty school. Uh, we didn't call it that then. Uh, but looking back now, I know that the, the children in that first school setting were were. Um, you know, probably all were eligible for free or reduced price meals. And from that point on, those were the schools that I gravitated toward and spent my in uh, P-12 experiences all in, in high poverty schools. 
looking back now, I'm, um, it, it, it was, a, it was exactly what I would have, have explicitly selected had I had, uh, the, you know, the foresight to, to, you know, to, to make consciously make that decision. So, um, uh, that's how I kind of fell into education, and and um, uh, then for years I was an early childhood educator, both in P twelve schools, and then I moved into higher education and and um, finished my graduate work. And um, throughout that entire time, I was just just squarely with a laser like focus. Um, uh, focused on early childhood education. So about uh, maybe 15 years ago, uh, we had the opportunity to explore an opportunity, explore a, a competitive granting process through the state of South Carolina. And Dr. Lauren Anderson, who uh, many of your listeners may know as the lead author on the revised Bloom's Taxonomy. He was actually Benjamin Bloom's graduate assistant at the University of Chicago. Uh, he was one of my graduate professors at the University of South Carolina, and um, he knew other folks at Francis Marion, and he came to us and and said that he had this idea for this, this center that would drill into the research on what matters most for under-resourced students and then disseminate that center that would then disseminate that out um, broadly and, and, and widely. Um, and the, the real impetus for his idea for this center was his testimony in the Abbeville versus South Carolina lawsuit. And if you're from South Carolina in education, you probably know what that is. But if you're outside of South Carolina, uh, in 1993, 40 school districts sued the state over issues of, of uh, equitable funding. They were primarily poor, rural, and because funding in, school funding in South Carolina is based on, on uh, taxes that are collected locally, um, these districts just could not provide the same kind of uh, quality education that districts that had big uh, corporate tax um, contributors could. So he testified in this lawsuit when it finally came to trial. He was he was the 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 data guy, and he uh, uh, created a way to talk about poverty, how to how to conceptualize it, and actually how to quantify it, and then how to quantify impacts for in schools that had high poverty. And so, uh, as he he tells the story frequently, that as he testified as he sat on that witness stand and as he listened to to testimony in the longest running trial in South Carolina history he and I might add that uh, uh, 60 minutes came to town during this case which is frequently um, excuse the excuse the the focus in some ways but because that that um, uh, documentary kind of series came to town, it, they began to really capture the physical facilities as, as if not the key component, a, a visually apparent component of the, of, the, of the lawsuit and of the trial. 
And as he said on the witness stand and, and, he, and then listened to testimony that, that concentrated lots and facilities and the crumbling buildings and inadequate heating and air and sewage coming up through the floors and just a, 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 a terrible physical description of the school settings in which students were asked to learn, he began to think about his experience walking down hallways of big, beautiful buildings with the, with the most up-to-date technology. And he began to think about how he had observed, even in those well-equipped buildings, that in one classroom, there would be great learning happening. And then right next door, maybe not so much. And so the the theory that emerged was that buildings and technology, those things are nice and important and helpful. But what matters most is the human capital, the teacher in the classroom, right. the leader in the school. And he envisioned a center that would, would provide supports for teachers who generally had had a one-size-fits-all teacher preparation program, meaning that it didn't matter where you were going to land, high-income schools or lower-income schools, you, you really received the same preparation. He believed that it takes unique and special skills to, to really reveal the capacity of every single learner. And if you have not lived with limited resources, many times it's easy to make judgments that are not accurate. So that's how the center came to Francis Marion, and I was fortunate enough to fall into it as the director of the center. I know that you get a chance to to travel around the state, so you've seen what I've seen where you have certain districts where they've got all the resources, and then there's other districts that are struggling uh, great, greatly with that, with resources. And I know I agree with you 100% that the quality of the teacher is, is number one in terms of what's happening for students. Um, but it seems to me that, that these districts with a lot of resources, are it's a little bit easier or probably a lot easier for them to recruit uh, quality teachers because they can pay them more, they can offer them more in, the, in, in terms of resources. What I, one of the things I think that, that's prob a problem is that a lot of people have this myopic vision where they only care about the quality of schools in their area or for their students, and they don't see the connection between what's going on in their lives and why they should care about students in other districts with fewer resources and more poverty. Can you, can you help make that connection for people that why it matters that all students across the state, regardless of their geographic location, have access to quality teachers and and um, and equitable funding. Right. That's that's um, was one of the central tenets of the of the lawsuit is that it, equitable funding that that students, no matter where they live, should have access to to high quality opportunities. And as as we all know, that those opportunities vary dramatically from place to place. So, so why is this important? Well, I believe that education gives students choices. Without education, without a high-quality education, our, our children will grow up without a choice. They will be at the mercy, really, of family members, of the faith-based community, or of government. And while everybody does not 
necessarily make the same choice that you or I might make. Education does give you the opportunity. And until we ensure that every student has an equal opportunity to a high quality education, then we need to, uh, we have to, we have to acknowledge then that those who did not have access will likely require support, again, from faith-based community, family members, or the government. So at the, at the most basic level, I think we all need to be invested in high-quality education, not just in South Carolina, but across the country. Because if, we, if students leave in uh, childhood and move into adulthood without the skills that they need to be um, career-ready or college-ready, then someone, and typically that's going to be a taxpayer, is going to have to pick up the slack. So at the most basic level, we need to care about it. Uh, at the most basic, and I use this term with some trepidation, but at the most basic selfish level, we need to ensure that everybody is as successful as they can be so that they are able to live a fulfilling uh, uh, life and be a great contributor to society. Um, and there's a lot in that I think that some people may take issue with, but but I think ultimately that's the 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 baseline on this is that we want everybody to be a contributing member of society and to be happy and successful. And education provides that. If they don't have it, then they're going to need services that will. Uh, become a burden on society for for um, people living in those areas where there are high levels of poverty and uh, I'm talking about community members or teachers what I, I you I know you could probably go on for hours about this single single question but if you could give a summary of what it is that you feel like people need to know the most about working with these young people who are coming from backgrounds of poverty what were, would be some key highlights that you would want them to, to know? Um, so are we thinking in terms of community members specifically, or are we thinking more well, in terms of educators? Let's start with the community members, because there may be some people listening to this podcast that aren't teachers. And okay. I, and, I don't, and I think sometimes they feel like, well, that's not my responsibility. Right. What, what would be what would be something that someone who is listening to this, they're, they're, they're a member of a community, they care about this issue, or maybe by this podcast, they're inspired to be to care. What what are some things that you would want them to know? What are some ways they can get involved to to help out? That's a really good question because I think that um, you're exactly right that many times we are hands-off on issues that we think do not either directly impact us professionally or or personally. Maybe we don't know anybody who's living in poverty, and so it's it's perhaps not as as real as it as it could be. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about community. Uh, influence and impact. Just a few things that I would that I would um, offer as as things to think about. If I were a community member, but not specifically in education, uh, it, you know, a long time ago, the faith based community or neighbors 
provided supports for those who were struggling. And um, I think that a lot of that continues to occur, but but we need to, I think, as community members, lock arms and em- embrace those who are less fortunate and and su- provide as many supports as we possibly can. And those might be, uh, well, I'm reminded of a, of a few very specific examples in my community. There's a Saturday morning, um, uh, it's called the Parking Lot Mission. And it is an opportunity on Saturday mornings for those who are in need to, to come to a parking lot in our community. And they're just different um, volunteer groups just show up. There's no advertising. There's no, um, you know, formal uh, model. It's just show up and 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 provide supports and it might be um to show up and have a a trunk filled with soap or toilet paper or it might be a a sunday school class that shows up and provides breakfast Uh, but it's designed to uh, fulfill a need for the the community who are living with limited resources because the 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 monday through friday uh, soup kitchen is closed, and so this provides just it, it's it's designed to just kind of fill the gap. And I think there are lots of gaps that community community members can fill. So that's one kind of aspect. But I think that another aspect of of what communities can do is uh, provide connections to resources. Uh, the one of the biggest resources I think that's missing are relationships. And uh, we live, um, I think, quite separately. And this is a way that we can uh, it just lend a hand to folks who are in need. And again, that's a, that's a hand up. We, we want to provide support so that, that folks can uh, gain um, uh, the resources they need that will lead them toward self-sufficiency and and I think we need to look for ways to make that happen in our community so so um, uh, that's one aspect the other aspect I would say is that we need to invest in our schools we need to invest our our time and talents in our schools we need to offer resources we need to ask our schools what do you need from us and it's not necessarily sometimes when we think about being a school volunteer we're thinking about going in and and putting in um, hours during the school day, whether it's reading to children or serving as a mentor. And those are two very powerful uh, um, uh, budget-neutral ways that we can that we can offer supports into our schools. But many people can't do those kinds of things during the school day. Um, you know, many people just are not ready to serve in that, that emotionally um, emotionally committed relationship as a mentor but what but there are lots of other things we can do we can provide financial resources to our schools we can we can um uh provide resources that we have access to because of the businesses or professions in in which we're personally involved there's so many ways that schools can benefit from what we have to offer and i sometimes think that if we don't have children in schools we we don't see ourselves as 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 personally invested as we could be so i would offer that as just a beginning point for ways that we can that we can ask our schools what do you need and how can we 
fill the needs that that you see as as uh, gaps. I think um, another thing as wonderful suggestions. One of the things that I'm really proud of, my dad was um, a principal of an elementary school um, in North Syracuse, New York. And one of the things that he emphasized was turning the school into a community center and and allowing, instead of um, having students go to the dentist, he would bring maybe a dentist in or a, a doctor in or he would have different community services available at the school where the kids already were. So instead of uh, it, it, I, th- I think that's helpful to, since the school's already there and built after school, ha- turning it into this community center. What are your thoughts on more schools across the country becoming community centers where students who are often dealing with poverty can have access to like healthcare, counseling services, um, after school care, uh, you know, and different different other programs that and, and parenting classes for parents. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you you gave a great example. Um, a lot of schools call these one-stop shops so that those kinds of resources are commonly available in a single um, uh, standalone facility. One of the big issues that we see for folks who live with limited resources is that transportation is a problem. And if they have to go from place to place to place to find resources, then that takes the limited amount of, of, um, of, of money that they have allotted for transportation. So, so I think that that is a, a uh, excellent idea is to have a one-stop shop and why not house them in community centers and schools in um, uh, child care centers. Oftentimes they're, they're positioned in Head Start centers, for example. So, so these are ways that we can, we can provide access. <coughs> Excuse me. We can provide access that is widely available, easily accessible. I think um, people, a lot of people who haven't been through a teacher ed program, don't necessarily know the connection to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. For for people who aren't familiar with Abraham Maslow's work, can you help? a person, a non-educator, make the connection between helping students out with these basic services, provide, making sure that they have adequate nutrition, making sure that they have uh, adequate access to health care, those kind of things. Can you help those people understand the connection to how that leads to greater student achievement? So Maslow's hierarchy is a, um, a theory of basic needs that lead toward um, uh, go from the most basic food, shelter, air, to a sense of love and belonging, uh, esteem, to cognitive needs, all the way to self-actualization, you know, be, uh, becoming a, um, if you will, a complete person. <clears throat> and that's our goal. That's, that's the goal in life, I think, for everyone. And and what's so interesting about Maslow's hierarchy, I believe, is that I studied that back in the 70s when I was in undergraduate school and 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 really it kind of put that theory on the shelf. I knew it was important, but I wasn't focused as focused on it as I as maybe I should be until I began became a student of neuroscience. And at that point I began to see how Maslow's hierarchy and, and brain science 
the science of learning dovetailed. And I began to see such a strong connection in, in how our brains uh, grow, develop, mature, and are usable for us, and how closely that's related to the, the, the ways in which our, our most basic needs are met and moving on up toward the, the most higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy. So uh, what a great way to inform our practice as members of a community and as educators as well is to think about basic needs. And if we, if we really want folks to uh, grow cognitively, to, um, to be cognitively college and career ready, then they can't even begin to think about that if there are more basic needs have not been met. Again, we, we think a lot, I think, about food and shelter. That's something that is pretty commonly uh, discussed, but we also got to think about esteem, a sense of love and belonging, and ways that as community members and as educators that we are ensuring that, that those needs are met with the because we understand that we can't deal with the cognitive stuff until we take care of those more basic needs. So as community members, how are we doing this? As educators, and this becomes a, 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 a very important theme in my work in schools. Uh, as educators, I think that we think we're charged with teaching kids to read or teaching kids to, you know, do math or find things on maps or, or understand history. But but if you buy into this, into Maslow's hierarchy and into the science of learning or neuroscience, then, then those cognitive needs are very, very far down the, the, the list of importance. Right. And they, they must come after the more basic needs of love, belonging, relationships, esteem, feeling like I'm somebody. Uh, those things have to be in place first, or the brain will always seek to have those needs met prior to the cognitive needs. It seems to me, and you can you're you're more uh, tapped into this than I am, but it seems to me that neuroscience is often a missing piece in in pre preparing uh, teachers, and also a missing piece in public schools in general. Can you can you talk a little bit more about the importance of neuroscience in preparing future teachers and also in helping teachers who are already out in the field who maybe didn't get that in their teacher ed program, the importance of focusing on, on neuroscience. I can tell you, Todd, that it has changed my life as a teacher, as a parent, as a human. Uh, I knew nothing about neuroscience 15 years ago absolutely nothing. Uh, in my undergraduate and graduate career, there was uh, virtually no um, study of neuroscience. And, and part of that early on was because we didn't know anything about neuroscience. Right. In fact, <clears throat> the most basic information that we had when I was in undergraduate school in the 70s was that IQ was fixed by age three. At that point, uh, your, your brain was finished unless we we um, engaged in activities that, that would hurt the brain, that would destroy brain cells. And, and um, 
so that was the initial thinking that we had from neuroscience, but now we know so much more than the the number one takeaway I have from my study of neuroscience is that brains are changing every second of every day. Yours, mine, little kids, big kids, everybody's brain is changing every second of every day. And we really cannot take a day off and, and, and say, okay, I'm, 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 I'm satisfied with where I am in terms of my brain today. I'll, I'll just hold for today. Really, you cannot do that. Every minute the brain is changing for the good or for the bad. And, and, um, so as from an educational standpoint, we can't lose a moment. We have, we have to make the most of every instructional minute. And this is particularly important for students who come to us with limited resources because we may be their, their chance, their connection to, to grow their brains in ways that are going to serve them very well. And this really has nothing to do with parental love. It doesn't have anything to do with parents. Um, you know, sometimes we, we draw the conclusion that parents maybe don't want big and and powerful things for their kids. And I don't believe that. I, I believe it has, it has to do with access to resources that the resources that parents have access to. And so when kids come to school, I think it's critical that teachers understand that, that we have this awesome power to change kids' brains. And we also have this awesome responsibility to do it. And what that means is that every single moment has to matter. It has to count. In my early days as a teacher, uh, gosh, I'm, I, we wasted a, a ton of time. I mean, we lost a lot of time. And I guess in my defense, I'll say that we just didn't know any better. But um, boy, now we know this. And, and anecdotally, I can share that everywhere I go, uh, in in virtually every um, group that with which I work, I do a survey of the group. How much do you know about neuroscience? And I ask them to give me a a hand signal that indicates how much they know. And and across the board, across states, across the nation, the the teacher reported knowledge of neuroscience is 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 minimal it's it's virtually non-existent and that is my biggest concern about education teacher education today is that we are not leveraging the power of neuroscience i typically share this comment uh again with with every group i'm i have the the honor of of uh learning with, and that is that I am more hopeful about education today than I have been at any point uh, in my career, and that's four decades, and and I am more hopeful because of the promise that neuroscience offers in that brains are changing, that they're not fixed, that every single brain can become significantly more sophisticated uh, with the right kinds of opportunities. We can grow every single brain. And um, I just think that gives us great hope as, as educators and, and really as, as humans. I, I mean, I agree with you hundred uh, percent. I, I find it odd that the people, the very people who are going to be working with student brains are never taught anything about 
the brain. It's like a mechanic who doesn't know anything about the, the engine. It just, it doesn't make sense to me. If, if what are some, due to that lack of knowledge about neuroscience, what are some of the common mistakes that teachers are making with students or school systems? What are, what, what are we, what mistakes are we making as a result of that ignorance of neuroscience? Um, well, I think that that we need to look at our policies and practices and ensure that they are compatible with growing the brain. Um, there, there are many policies and practices that are currently in place that I have employed across my career that are really not good for the brain. So I think we need to to understand what causes a brain to thrive and ensure that as as much as possible, we have reviewed our policies and practices and that they are brain compatible. Uh, To that end, I would say that uh, we need to, uh, I realize we live in a standards-based world. I may not be um, all in on standards, especially in the way that that we use them, but I, I accept that that's that there is a reason that we have an emphasis on standards, and I don't necessarily disagree with those reasons. So, so, um, so I, I, I would not want this to come across as as um, uh, my suggestion that we throw away standards because I, I I I would never say that. But I do think that we need to either add to our standards or we need to to emphasize a, an additional arm of of uh, focus if you will that is based on the the quality of the relationship and the emphasis that we place on building relationships with our students and also perhaps secondarily with the family but especially with the students uh, the research is absolutely clear that the the factor that is most likely to change the trajectory for students is the quality of the relationship that teachers and school leaders have with every single student and and this is this is that brain piece it's it's all about esteem and and um uh being validated as a human comes before cognitive needs so if we can if we can um convince kids that we care about them and if we can build and cultivate strong and powerful relationships with our students then I think that's going to make it a whole lot easier for us to be successful on that cognitive end that standards-based end and um, I I just think that we have gotten uh, we've become so one-sided um, again not suggesting that standards are uh, should not drive instruction in in, in big ways. I, I, I would not suggest that, but instead that we have to have a multi-pronged approach and that, that relationships have to come first. If you, if you look at our, our, our center, and I, I hope that your listeners will visit our center's website and, and uh, explore a little bit, uh, we've identified 25 practices that we think are absolutely essential 
for to the success of under-resourced kids. And, and it's not that these are not important practices for all students, but we feel like they're non-negotiable in schools that serve under-resourced students because those students are far less likely to have access to those um, resources outside of school. And again, not because their parents don't love them, but simply because of access. So, so if you look at those 25 practices, and again, we identified those practices by looking at, at high poverty schools in which students were excelling. And, and that's how we teased those from the, and, and identified those. But if you look at our 25 practices, the number one practice uh, numerically, and I would suggest uh, uh, from a a practical standpoint, the number one strategy is build relationships. We've got to build relationships first. Um, and this first, but it has to be ongoing as well. We don't just do it the first day of school. We don't just do it the first week of school. We would never devote that little attention to our personal relationships. So why would we only concentrate on building relationships in schools and the very first day of school? We got to do it around the clock. It, it's, it is what keeps people invested and when, if we want our students to be invested in the learning process, they have to have that personal connection. So I would say that's probably the, 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 the biggest and most powerful message I try to share in schools is that it, it may seem like it's a time, you know, a, a, it might take a lot of time. What we found is that uh, when teachers have relationships with students, there's about a 31% reduction in discipline issues, which then means we can take all that time and we can roll it back into instruction. So we actually are increasing instructional time by taking the time to cultivate relationships, uh, authentic relationships with our students. So I would say that's super important for educators to to, um, embrace. I want to share your uh, website with our listeners. Uh, if you go to www.fmucenterofexcellence.org, there's a tab for best practices on the uh, upper navigation, top navigation, and then you can select a, a topic. Um, you can, you know, if you want to learn more about building relationship, these relationships, uh, poverty data resources, neuroscience, th- those kind of things. You've done a great job of organizing by topics and then, when you click on those topics, there are all kinds of, um, of resources um, that, that are available to people, articles and, and resources for, for learning more about that topic specifically. Um, I want to drill down just a little bit more before we, we end out our, our conversation together, drill down a little bit deeper on, on neuroscience when it comes specifically to students uh, of poverty. One of the great things that I remember about your presentation is, is talking about students who have are coming from background, backgrounds where there's trauma or there there's a significant amount of stress in, in the um, that they're they're coming to school with, so they're carrying that stress into the school. And I think I think what happens, and I know as a former educator, um, just being ignorant of this, you know, you think once they come in the school building, it's time for them that they need to be ready to learn, they need to quiet down, be ready to learn, behave, and and you almost are just like, well, your personal problems and all that. That's not important. We, we've got learning to do here, and I don't want you to disrupt my class. And I, I want you to learn. And if you can't do that, you're going to we're going to punish you and sit sit you in ISS or kick you out of school. And your 
presentation, you know, there's this huge light bulb moment for me where it was like, well, if the student's carrying the stress in with them and we don't address that stress, we don't give them an opportunity to process that stress, then just going back to that, that Maslow thing, they're, they're not going to be have the mindset where they're re ready for what I have to teach them. So I've talked enough to talk about that, about the specific needs of students who are coming in from high poverty backgrounds or where they've experienced trauma or stress and the importance of how we transition them to, to make them ready to learn. Uh, you've you've um, addressed very clearly and squarely the second most important factor I think that teachers and educators must be cognizant of as they move through the world as as key players in the lives of under-resourced kids, and, and that is toxic stress. <clears throat> what we know from, from neuroscience is that there are some, some um, good stressors. That's, you know, basic stress. Your alarm goes off in the morning. That's a good stressor uh, because it, it, it prompts the brain to move into gear that can be productive. But if that stress becomes toxic, meaning that it spirals out of control, then the brain has to uh, changes in two very uh, key ways. One key way is that it changes the chemicals that are literally produced in the body, and the brain becomes driven by cortisol, which is a stress chemical, as opposed to, say, dopamine, which is a pleasure chemical and neurotransmitter hormone, if you will. So, so teachers need to know this. If kids have cortisol, heavy doses of cortisol, we cannot teach them. that it, is, it doesn't matter if you're teacher of the year. It is virtually impossible to teach kids who are living under the conditions of toxic stress that include this chemical that's produced in the brain, but also a, a high stress, toxic stress changes where the blood flows in the brain. Right. And it reroutes the blood from the essentially heavy blood flow to the prefrontal cortex or the front third of the brain. And it reroutes it down to the emotional centers of the brain, like, for example, the amygdala. And the reason this matters is that the prefrontal cortex is where we need that, that, that um, heavy blood flow to occur during instructional times, because that's the portion of the, of the brain in which kids problem solve, analyze, organize, prioritize, delay gratification, assess risk. It is a, it is the, the really the heavy cognitive processing area of the brain. So if a, a student is living in toxic stress, then that means the blood flow to that portion of the brain is going to be reduced. And instead, it's going to go to the emotional center of the brain, the, the centers of the brain that allow us to make quick emotional decisions. Commonly, we refer to this as fight, freeze, or flight. And as you can imagine, if I'm an algebra teacher, um, I need my kids to have uh, the ability to think cognitively as opposed to respond emotionally. And um, so we have, we, we must be aware of the impact of, of toxic stress on the brain and on the learners that come to us. Now, we're not going to be able to reduce all of the stressors that they have in their lives. Um, if, if they have some outside influence that is, you know, 
perhaps they're worrying about, am I going to have dinner tonight? Or, or am I going to be, you know, uh, feel in danger on the bus ride home? Or, or maybe someone has moved in with us to share expenses and, and it's making me uncomfortable. Uh, those are just a few of the kinds of stressors that can impact kids. And, and it's going to change how that brain brain processes information and how successful that brain can be in school unless we help kids learn how to manage their stress. Now, again, we're not going to be able to take away all of their stressors, but what we can do is explicitly teach them the impact of stress and explicitly teach them strategies for managing stress. And and there are many stress reducing strategies that we can that we can put into place and and because we because when we take the time to explicitly teach this to students then what we're doing is equipping them not only for the the time that we have them in our classroom we're equipping them for life stress we all experience stress but we're equipping them for that later life and and um what that's going to do then is is uh help them manage those stressors and more likely to move through the world cognitively rather than emotionally in terms of their decision making. I like to use the analogy, and I don't think this is entirely original, but to help teachers or adults understand this concept about the prefrontal cortex, um, I always say, like, you know how you're, you have your cell phone and you've got this, you've got LTE coverage and everything's going great, and then all of a sudden you, you go out maybe uh, into a rural area and you go down to 3G and then it's and then in, sometimes you just lose your signal altogether your phone's still on but you don't have access to the internet anymore and if i if i were to punish you and yell at you because you no longer have that access uh and you can't can't look something up for me it, instead of yelling at you and punishing you for that helping you find a way to reestablish the connection to to that and i always like to say that students who are under this this toxic stress often just have their, their prefrontal cortex is offline. So their decision-making and, and, and their ability to learn all that is, is going offline. Is that, is that you think an appropriate analogy? I, I think that, <clears throat> excuse me. I think that that is absolutely accurate that, that, um, um, you have a spotty connection or sometimes no connection at all. And, and you, you, just move through the world emotionally rather than cognitively. And, and that just does not play well. Uh, if, if you think about those of us who are fortunate to live in middle income, uh, think about what happens when, when we are stressed and, right. and how we respond differently. It, it just changes our ability to um, think through a situation and to process it and as a result of that, it it um, oftentimes it digs a deeper hole. You know, it, it, it we you know we uh, one of the things we talk a lot about with stress is that it changes your creativity, it changes your ability to cognitively process, it shortens attention span, it uh, it, it uh, 
reduces our ability to remember things, both short-term and long-term. It changes, and this is super important for kids, it changes our social judgment skills, meaning that we might say or do things that we would not otherwise do, but we did it because we were really stressed. How many times have, have, have all of us been in a situation that we've, that we've um, uh, maybe said or done something that the next day, we have to walk it back and apologize for it. And and oftentimes, we end that apology was, I'm really sorry I did this. I was so stressed at the moment. It changes the way we move through the world. And some researchers tell us that, that living in toxic stress literally reduces our IQ and, and, and will continue to do so over the long term. Stress is bad, and we yeah. must have ways to manage it. Sadly, too, I think what's happening is a lot of teachers are, are stressed out. So not only are the students coming in with toxic stress, but then they're in an environment in a classroom where the teacher is dealing with some toxic stress because of, for a multitude of reasons. And so it, not only is there, a, not only is it not, when are we able to sort of address that or intervene for that student, but we may be making it worse. Um, can you talk about that for a little bit? Sure, I, I, I think you're absolutely correct. That that um, you know earlier we mentioned policies and practices, and and I think that we do have a lot of policies and practices in our schools that um, that we mean well and that worked 20 years ago. But given the different brains that come to us, our brain, the, the, the research is absolutely clear that kids that come to us today have brains that are wired differently than those who came as few as five, five years ago. And a lot of that has to do with technology. Um, but as long as we continue to employ policies and practices that do not respect the brains that come to us, the brains that are suffering with with toxic stress, then we can expect that we're going to lose kids. We're going to, uh, kids are going to be removed from classrooms for being disruptive or non-compliant or, you know, you know, whatever their behaviors are. And, and one of the messages I, I, I try to uh, share with those who, who participate in our activities is that, that, um, we have a couple of choices. We can punish kids for either having an immature frontal lobe or not being able to utilize their frontal lobe in ways that are going to serve them best, or we can teach them. And, and those are our two choices. And I think, sadly, we sometimes try to punish these um, uh, stress-induced behaviors that are absolutely inappropriate for school. That, that's not my point. Um, but we try to punish them and punish those behaviors out of those kids, if you will. And what we've learned is that you cannot punish this out of a child. In fact, what that does is escalate the stress, which yes. exacerbates the situation, which typically ends up in the child being removed from the classroom. And when they leave our classroom, we cannot teach them. Ultimately, my goal is to keep the student in the classroom because that's where the learning will occur. If we lose them, if we lose them, even if their behaviors are inappropriate, if we lose them, they're not learning when they're in the office or when they are in 
out of school or in school suspension, they are not learning there. We've got our goal has got to be to figure out how to keep them in the classroom. And if teaching them to strategies for stress reduction can can lead to their uh, uh, greater participation in the classroom, then that's that's as important as teaching them uh, to read or any of our other standards. Before we leave, uh, I want to give you the opportunity to recommend anything to listeners for further uh, learning, if uh, podcasts, books, uh, films, any, any, uh, anything that you have uh, that you'd like to recommend for further learning. Uh, there's so many things that are now being published that especially look at the impact of neuroscience and the brain uh, and teaching and how we should use that to inform our teaching practices. Look for anything along those lines. We uh, I appreciate your recommendation of our website and the searchable database. Definitely look there. Uh, our center uh, offers an, a number of professional study events for teachers, educators, and actually even for community members. Our summer institute is coming up in June. Uh, you can find out information about that. We'll be bringing in nationally recognized speakers and also have breakout sessions. So that's a great way for teachers to uh, continue their professional study. Um, and, and also look at the, the, the print and electronic resources that are available on our website. There's just so much that we can learn that can change the way that we teach, but also change, as, as you mentioned before, our own stress levels as teachers. Uh, the more tools we have in our toolkit, the, the more empowered we will be to really fulfill that ambition that we had when we when we moved into this profession. Uh, you know, I'm four decades into this profession, and I can tell you that there is nothing else I would rather be doing. And and the hope that I have that I expressed earlier is is something that I that I really wish for every teacher to to have that every single day that that they walk into the classroom, they see this great opportunity that they have to change that trajectory for every student that that they that they teach that they and and whose paths they cross so so um I encourage everyone to take a look at our resources and and also to contact me i'm i'm welcome email communications questions uh, uh anybody who needs resources we will do our best to connect you with the things that we think of have influenced our work at least um, uh, very positively. And that email address would be uh, tpoloski at fmarion.edu. That's it. All right. Um, and I will, uh, I'll post that with the, the podcast when we, when we do publish it. I want to thank you for your time and more importantly, thank you for the work that you do. I think it is so, so important. And I can't imagine the number of lives that you've impacted positively because of your work. And I just want to thank you for that. Todd, thank you so much for having me and for the opportunity to just share some of the things that we're learning that are changing the way, change the way I'm moving through the world as, a, as an educator. Thank, thank you. you.